Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with philosopher and scholar Jacob Needleman, hosted by Michael Lerner, as they discuss Gurdjieff, A Life in the Work. Gail Needleman performs the music of Gurdjieff for the opening and closing of this event. This is the fourth conversation Jerry and I have had. Um, and um, formally, Jerry is a professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University and former director of the Center for the Study of New Religions at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, and is the author of many celebrated works of philosophy, uh, including uh, The New Religions, uh, published in 1970. And this is a very partial set of his books here. They're the ones I found readily on my tabletop and bookcase when I pulled my <laughs> books together this morning. There are others downstairs. But um, Jerry has a quite um, unique position uh, in uh, Bay Area public philosophy and spiritual life. I think it's fair to say. We've had three previous conversations, and the conversation today is about his life in the Gurdjieff work. And we'll talk more about who Gurdjieff was, a great um, spiritual teacher, uh, but a wonderful way to begin is with some of uh, the Gurdjieff music. And Gail Needleman is an accomplished Gurdjieff interpreter and musician. So Gail, I wonder if you would start by playing some of Gurdjieff's music for us.
to me, the fact that Gurdjieff left us music as well as everything else brings me into more immediate contact with him than is possible with most uh, teachers of spirit. Um, Keith Jarrett, who some of you may know is a great musician, was uh, a student of the Gurdjieff music, and he has an album of the Gurdjieff music that I play constantly when I'm driving in my car often. Uh, it, um, it has great power, and to me, there's a sense of presence in the Gurdjieff music that um, is hard to uh, bring into words. Gail, thank you so much for, for playing for us. Jerry Needleman, welcome back to the new school. Great to be here. You know, in one of our last conversations, I remember I started the conversation by saying to you, Jerry, what is love? And you memorably responded, I think you first said, could you ask me something else? <laughs> and then you went on to say, love is work. And you looked at Gail and you said, isn't that right? You said, it's work, it's joyful work, but it's work. And it occurred to me that the title of our conversation today is A Life in the Work. And so, just as a starting place, I wonder whether in your mind, when you responded, love is work, and when we titled this A Life in the Work, and when I understand that at the heart of Gurdjieff's teaching, it is that to awaken is work, uh, that there's some deep resonance to the idea that love is work and that the work of Gurdjieff is to uncover this source of love. I think we could start with... Uh speaking about the vision of human nature, the vision of what a human being is and meant to be. Um, why, the question of why this species humanity appeared on earth according to the Gurdjieff teaching. Every, everything, every living thing has its own unique purpose, just as within an organism, every tissue, every cell, every organ, every system serves a purpose, has a purpose, a function. And everything in the system serves, serves that which is above it, or more general than it, or the whole organism. And so we know that from organisms. But the question isn't really asked or understood very well, what does humanity serve? 
and what was he put for. So, human, a human being is meant to serve, is, is here to, according to his teaching, he's on, he's on earth to serve other people, other human beings, to serve the earth, and to serve, in a way, it's a certain function in the universe. And that means, practically speaking, that we are built to serve. We are built, that means, to be able to love. And from what I've understood of the Gurdjieff work, watching the close pupils of Gurdjieff, he gave a teaching, ideas, and a practical method in order to help people discover what they are who they are, what they're meant to be. And he created certain conditions of life around him in his atmosphere, in his behavior, and in what he was, which we'll talk about a little more. And these conditions of practical work, which I have tried to participate in as much as I can, and personally, were not easy because he saw that, as he understood it, that humanity is not aware of what it's meant to be. As he said, mankind, humanity is asleep. He lives at a level of consciousness far below what he's meant to be. And that, in that sense, his, he's not living his life. The people are not living their life as they were, according to what they are supposed to be, according to their possibility. And in order to come to see that, to see how far they are from what they are meant to be, they need to have certain experiences that shed take away the illusions that keep them in this sort of hypnotic trance where they live removed from the universe, really, inwardly, removed from humanity, inwardly. <clears throat> and it wasn't easy to be with him. It, wasn't, it isn't easy to be in the work in that sense, in one sense, because it means struggling to accept the... the the capacity to see that you're very far from what you personally, I personally, am meant to be. And it's very painful in one sense, 
and very joyful, finally, in another sense. But it's a struggle. It's a difficult, subjectively difficult thing. But the result is awakening. Some, at some degree, more or less, or many levels. And when Gurdjieff saw someone, one of his pupils, whether they were beginners or very advanced, when he saw them struggling to bring a question from the heart, bring their need from their heart, having suffered their incapacity to speak or whatever, and to be touching a question which goes to the very heart of, his, of, of the being, and, and, and working, working hard to let that difficulty appear, to see it, and to express it in front of this awesome figure, Gurdjieff, which people were, of course, in one sense intimidated and in another sense just drawn with great hope and great love for him. But it was exposing himself in the level of being, of his being, not just in psychological habits and things that would be adequate for a therapy, but not for the struggle to awaken metaphysically to one's own necessary place. And it's a very touching account of one of his closest pupils when he saw this one student, this one man who was a doctor, struggling on the whole for day after day to speak his real question to Gurdjieff. And Gurdjieff didn't make it easy. He was worried, he was frightened, he was quiet, he was silent, he was pulled to go away, he was horrible fear of saying something wrong or whatever. But he worked inwardly, he came down, he struggled, and he croaked out this question from his heart of hearts, struggling. Gurdjieff smiled. That's what he was waiting for. That's what he hoped for from this man. That was his love for this man that he was awakening. And he said, and and one can verify that, whenever I see, whenever one sees a human, another human being struggling for the truth, struggling to be, be, do the right thing, you cannot help but love them. And you can verify that. Whenever you see someone who's really struggling for the good, not for the ego, not for uh, money, not for pleasure, not for winning, you cannot help but love them. And that shows something about human beings, but it shows something about us, that there is the capacity, the need to love, that's what we're built for. We're built to serve, built to give. And we, we need to first suffer, the, consciously suffer that we are not able to give. We're not able to love consciously. We have much, much kind of love, which is attractions, 
biological, social, conditional, and so forth, but to love consciously as Gurdjieff did and as Gurdjieff helped other people to do. That's, that's a, defines human nature because he felt that mankind was brought onto the earth to serve the earth, which needed a certain kind of energy that only a human being could bring. We can speak about the dynamics of that. So what is love? That kind of love is what the work calls conscious love, and it's work to get there. It's work. Any kind of real love is work, because we are conditioned very often by the society we're in, particularly maybe more in modern times than even other times, to believe that our happiness depends on getting, getting, even if it's decorated as love, but to get, get, whereas our meaning depends on giving. So we would, I would start with that question from what I would consider to be above and come down, come down. Can we work with that response? Who was Gurdjieff? Who? He must have been born with some special gifts. He must have been gifted enormously with some kind of sensitivity. But as he taught, no one is born conscious. No one is born with a fully developed soul, fully developed essence. He's, you have to work for that. So he worked, he found something, he, he grew, and he grew as a child. He describes his, his deep interest in his, the, the knee of his father who spoke to him about, from, with great tales, stories, traditional legends about the, truth about the drama of humanity, uh, the universal laws. His father was that kind of a person, as in a way a little bit, so most of us are at our at childhood. And he was gifted with wonderful parents, people who fed, fed this spiritual need that he was born with, that we are born with that yearning. And it was fed by his family, by his father particularly, and by the people around him when he was young. And he felt that he, he must, there must be something, some source of knowledge that existed because he was, he was very learned about science and about religion. He was brought up in a religious tradition, but something was missing. Something was missing in the religions around him, in the science around him, in all the teachings, in all the philosophies, in all the things people thought was important. There was something missing. And I think we can all register that in ourselves that we go through life very often with getting, even when one has much good things happening in life, sometimes you can grow up in many years, something is missing, I don't know what. 
Is this all there is? And he determined, he found very good friends who had the same feeling. And they gathered together and made a serious search in different parts of Central Asia and other areas for what was maybe a hidden teaching that had the answer to this question. And he found, they claim, he says, seems to have actually found it for, for, for himself and then felt that this is something that needs to be shared, and, uh, but under special conditions, specially shared in a way that could actually make people raise their level of being. And that's a word that I think we need to ponder because what, what he discovered, particularly in the modern conditions of life, the modern world, as I've tried to, in my own personal life, get a glimpse of, is something which he called being. And I can say that in order to answer this question, I'm sorry, but I can't help but go around. Uh, when I first came into the Gurdjieff work, one of the people that I heard speaking was a man who made a great difference in my life named John Pentland, or he was an English lord, so he was called Lord Pentland. And when I first heard him speak about the work, he was a brilliant man. I couldn't understand the word he was saying. He started to speak, and it was, I couldn't follow him. It was so strange, unusual. And I just said, well, another person spoke sitting next to him usually, and that person spoke very simply, very clearly. I had no problems. But this John Pentland, and I was not, you know, I was no, not foolish or anything. I mean, I was very smart. No longer am I very smart, but I was in those days. And I couldn't understand him. Years later, after having left, gone away from the Gurdjieff work for a few years, I happened to come to San Francisco, where in a class I was teaching, I mentioned the name Gurdjieff, and a student leaped up from his chair, practically floating it up to the ceiling and came up to me, who happened to be in the Gurdjieff work, which was then and still is very private. And he came up to me and asked me how I knew about it and all that. We went into a long conversation. And then finally, the, up the end of the story here is, I met with this Lord Pentland because I got my interest in the work was reawakened. And I met with him, and I, he started, you know, and I was in this little room with him. He was sort of studying me, I think. But I met with him, and he started talking. And I, didn't, I had never heard anything like it. And suddenly, I began to see something, and I don't know what I was seeing. It was something about him. 
Yes, I began to understand some of his words, which were remarkable, but there was something about this man. I couldn't put my finger on it because I met many smart, elegant teachers, professors and scholars and gurus and things, but there was something I couldn't put my finger on it. What I discovered later, it took me a while. And I'll never forget the feeling. It took, took a couple of years, many, several years, to see that what he had was being. And that is what Gurdjieff saw, that the modern world, particularly, had lost the idea, the reality of being, and a human, and a human being. It wasn't being smart, it wasn't being talented, it wasn't being uh, generous, it wasn't being, all those things could be, but being was not recognized as a quality of humanity that mankind needed to develop. And so Gurdjieff, you could say, was a man who had being, an awesome, you know, awesome amount, awesome way. And that's the beginning of an answer to who he is, who he was. He saw that there's many pieces of tradition that had been in the world and religions, and, and many teachings had come from, even begun to come from Asia into the West. But somehow, being was not being communicated to humanity, because he made a distinction between essence, which is our inner being, and what he called personality, which is the acquired sense of identity from the culture and education and so forth, that many things were being offered, great philosophies, gurus and teachers that were beginning to come into the West, but they touched only, mainly he saw, the personality, not the essence. That required a whole different kind level of work and struggle. And I could go into that at some point, but the, the fact that the being of man has, is a condition where the whole part of the human organism is, is infused with a certain level of energy, which is, allows a human being to become yeah, fully present in his life and in his manifestations. And, well, that's where the, that question would lead further on. Uh, it's a very important aspect, the quality called being. Like an English word, as an English word, being has no synonyms. It has no, you can't define it. You can, and in an experience, you can't really define it either but you can feel it, and you can feel it when you have it, too. Because we all have moments of being in our childhood, you know, growing up, moments when the, uh, the sense of I am exists, and I am fully there, and fully in the presence. That is, however, a temporary thing with almost all of us. You're listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner. And the question may come and arise, if the culture doesn't understand how to 
what this is when we have these moments of being. It can be in a very dangerous moment in one's life. It can be in a joyful moment. It can be anywhere. But when we really have this feeling of I am fully here now, I exist, there's a transformation takes place, but it lasts a flash, a moment or two maybe. It's all, it happens that that's a kind of a message from the organis, organism that here I am, I am you. I am you. Let me into your life. That's what he brought, I think, in, in a nutshell. Does that make sense? A quality of being that Gurdjieff brought to his teaching. Um, in your writing about him, um, and I'm drawing on a few things. Uh, first of all, a lovely little tiny book called Introduction to the Gurdjieff Work that um, we have some copies available for people who have come that are thanks to you and Gail Free downstairs. Also, um, your book, What is God?, which is really a lovely book. And in the last chapters, you talk directly about Gurdjieff. Um, and the third source I was using is a little pamphlet called The Ideas of Gurdjieff from um, a conference at Dominican College um, that I believe you helped put together. Um, and um, so there are so many directions we could take this, but um, there was a phrase, and I'm not sure whether it was a phrase from Eugene de Salzman, who Gurdjieff left his work with as his primary interpreter at his death, or whether it was from Gurdjieff himself, but it's a phrase that meant a lot to you, which is the phrase, if I have it right, the remorse of conscience. Do I have that right? And so I wondered if you would talk a little bit about, was that de Salzman's phrase or was that Gurdjieff's? Gurdjieff. It's Gurdjieff's phrase. So, and she, of course, carried it with him. Right. So if you could say a little bit about the immense power of, of what that phrase carries uh, in the work. It's a very major, major part of the whole Gurdjieff teaching. And which Madame de Salzman, who was his greatest pupil, carried forward. And it comes from a basic spiritual law that every great spiritual teaching tries to live. And that, that is that human, humanity is very far from what it is meant to be. And only if a human being can begin to see how far we are, he is, she is, began to begin to experience it, 
not just think about it, not just hear about it, but actually stands alive in front of the, how the, the distance we are from what we are meant to be. And there's a, a part of human nature which is built into us, which sees that, which helps us see that, which is the instrument of seeing that, feeling it and sensing it with the whole of oneself. And that's called conscience. That's what he calls and what it should be called conscience. It isn't just the superego having blaming the ego or blaming the sexual desires or blaming the uh, doing bad deeds or something. Yes, that exists as a conscience is meant as something which is society and, and human educational systems and so forth helps us uh, see how we behave and get, makes us feel bad. In fact, makes us feel guilty. But guilt is not conscience. What Gurdjieff meant by remorse of conscience is when you see with the hold of yourself what you are and you realize you could not have done otherwise and yet you did. This is not something you could have corrected. This is not something you should have done otherwise. This is something that is you. You, you are in debt. You are ill in the lack of what you were meant to be. And so you, the response of remorse of conscience is to feel a great need that you can't fill, either from inside or from outside. When you feel that need, really feel it, it's not something you, you say, I should have done otherwise. It's something which you bow your head. And we've all had these experiences of deep, real conscience. It's not something you, it, it, it's a, in a way not a negative emotion. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very deep sorrow for what you are. The more you have that, the more that you open you, you are to what is trying to be given to human beings. So a real remorse of conscience opens the heart and mind to an energy and a force of love, of giving, that can transform. It's a transformative moment if you know how to accept it. First of all, to experience it and then to accept it, then something can be given. And in every tradition, the Christian, the Jewish, the Sufis, in India, the Buddhist, the more you see how far you are, the more you need, you see how yet you need something from above, either that comes from the God inside or the God above. You need that the more you are given. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Now, you just used the phrase, the God above or the God inside, but... Beautifully in your book, What is God? Uh, and Gina Salzman used the phrase, What the Religions Call God. Um, you talk about how, in your heart of hearts, even as you entered the Gurdjieff work, you were at the deepest level an atheist, that you really uh, were grateful that you were protected from the sense of God. Um, 
by the fact that the Gurdjieff work rarely used the term God. And so you were brought into this work in a way that enabled you to work from this, in your deepest soul, atheist position, and that you regarded that atheism actually the scientific atheism of our time as, um, as a necessary purgative of our sort of wishful beliefs about religion that stripped us down to a place where we might understand God in a completely different way. And that Gurdjieff's central mission, as he understood it, was to help humanity understand God in a fundamentally different way. And something that has a lot to do with that teaching of understanding God in a completely different way was his teaching about the meaning of attention. Could you say something about the meaning of attention? On the way to that final sentence, you covered a lot of mountains. I do my best. (laughs) And it's a very good best. So, uh, what he means by attention is a vast, vast subject. What he means by consciousness is a vast subject. The two are very closely related. We usually think of the word attention as being thinking about something. Give your attention to the glass, and I can be thinking about it. But thought, and thought is in that sense of the word thought, which is not the highest sense by any means. Uh, In that sense, the word thought Thought is not attention. Attention is another quality, another kind of energy in this human psyche. And we have experiences of it when we can become very much more present. We have a greater, finer attention, an attention that includes the whole of ourselves. And at this very moment, most uh, one is not very connected to that kind of attention. Uh, but, and it's hard to define, like this is hard to define as being, but it's our most unique human faculty. For, for, for purposes of discussion, we could say that, and it has been said, that attention is the only thing that I really have of my own that is free. Everything else is given. Our biology is given. Our society educates us. Certain ideas are put into us. Opinions are put into us. Ways of behaving. Our physical needs are given. Even our departures from what's given are given. Uh, uh, It's what is my own. Just my own. Everything I look at, if I think my opinions, did I really create, did I really evaluate, did I really consciously allow them in, 
if we went into our mind somehow like it was a, a, an antique store or something with lots of junk in it, I would find lots of junk and also a few precious pearls that nobody saw or some old paintings, I mean, thoughts and ideas that were put into me in some way. But my attention is free. And so we could say that uh, I am my attention. And so much of the work is for the education about what attention means and the development of it so that it can serve the needs of an evolving human being. Because when we give our attention to our habits, to our thoughts, we give our attention to them. They, when attention is put on my reactions, my loves, my habits, my, my difficulties, the energy of attention touches these aspects of ourselves and actually begins to transform them. So what he calls, what the work calls self-observation means the cultivation of a free human attention directed to oneself so that this attention, which is an energy that comes from another level in myself, which I somehow can bring toward my actual thoughts and manifestations, when that attention can be brought to myself, it not just gives me knowledge of what I am, it begins to even transform what I am in that moment. So we see that when we give just... Attention has to be impartial. It has to be calm. It has to be... uh, Um, independent. It's not just an attention that's serving some desire or serving some egoistic purpose or some practical, functional thing. It's pure seeing, pure attention, which we can develop, we can use. When the pure attention, which is our gift, which is our birthright, to have attention to what we are, not in the sense of trying to manipulate anything, not in the sense of trying to accomplish anything, not in the sense of trying to make make big judgments about anything, but just pure attention, just pure seeing. That is self-observation, what he means by that. And that part of the Gurdjieff work is to cultivate that capacity of non-judgmental attention, freely chosen toward myself. And that kind of self-observation is not what we usually call it. Usually self-observation very often is judgments about myself, liking and disliking or figuring out something. But pure attention has a transforming quality. When that begins to be developed, then the attention itself comes into the, can come into the body through an act of myself, toward myself. When that happens, something like 
my real identity begins to wake up. When this real identity, which is so far usually very hidden from us, is touched or begins to be touched by real attention, pure attention, it begins to enter into my whole. It begins to grow. The real identity, the real I, as we call it sometimes, begins to peek through the covering of our personality, social identity. And at that point, Gurdjieff says something like the real I can begin to awaken because another, this other attention has called on all the parts and they all begin to relate to each other. And when the parts of ourself, the body, the mind, the, the, the sensations, the feelings, all begin to talk to each other, it, that opens the entry of this real I. And that which we call ultimately self-remembering, which is a word that big, very important part of the Gurdjieff work is what he calls self-remembering. That means you, as it were, the Plato's sense of remembering, which is that you, 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 when you really begin to understand the world or things, you are, it's as though it's something that was already in you and now is being discovered. To remember itself means now suddenly you are in touch with the real, beginning to be, beginning to be in touch toward the real I. And the real I, we, 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 again, we experience in special moments in our life. We don't know what to call it sometimes, but we really know it when it's there, really, on the real I. That real I is like the, the direction toward what, how Gurdjieff understands the word soul. The real I is on the, in the direction of the soul. And that soul, that real I, can receive very high influences from other teachers or people or events or the universe itself and distribute it to the whole organism. And the result is, when, really, when it's done long enough and with great guidance, then one develops a whole other life in the body, a body within the body, which is one of the main aims of the work to lead us toward. it. So it's that from the question of attention leads to that kind of thing. Are you all following? I mean, am I making things worse or better? So far, so good. Huh? So far, so good. So I'd like, to, I'd like to kind of go back over some ground that we've covered um, and add a few things. So in, your, in a number of places, but in this little introduction to the Gurdjieff work, um, and also in What is God, um, you talk about how for a long time humanity identified uh, its highest self with reason and knowledge. And that the idea was that reason, it was basically, you know, positivism, that, that reason and knowledge uh, were, you know, the enlightenment, reason and knowledge were going to set us free, set us on the road to a better world, um, and um, that science was going to free us, basically. And that it turned out differently, that uh, reason and science and knowledge 
have brought many things into the world, but at the same time, as we speak today, um, the direction is less than entirely positive, and um, and that the uh, the suffering of humanity and life uh, continues to deepen in many respects. Um, I have two observations. One I mentioned to you at lunch that. This is an interesting moment in which to be talking about Gurdjieff because when he emerged from his travels in Moscow in 1912, uh, he taught in Moscow for a while. And then as, uh, as war broke out and everything broke down, he led his followers through uh, uh, the Central Europe down to, or through Russia and the, uh, down uh, to Turkey. And... Um, through impossible dangers, through wars and revolutions and needing to cross frontiers and war lines and change identities every several days. And here he was uh, with this group of people who had never faced anything like this in their lives, um, bringing his followers safely through these incredible perils um, and continuing to use these times as a teaching, and uh, then ultimately uh, moved to Berlin, and then to uh, and then uh, to England, and then to Paris. So on. I may not have the exact uh, things right, but ended up outside Paris, uh, where he ultimately died. So one thought line, which I don't think we need to think too much about, is just how apt it is right now that what seemed to us like extraordinarily difficult times in the presence of great suffering is nothing compared to the suffering through which Gurdjieff led his followers and continued the teaching. So it's just, that's kind of a, a sideline. But the central observation is the fundamental teaching that we've been talking about, that humanity was designed for a higher purpose, that its purpose uh, was to become what we are capable of being, and in so doing, uh, to save uh, the earth. And that um, his teaching was about what we've just been discussing, how the remorse of conscience in a deep sense, leads us to that great recognition that we aren't what we could be, and that causes, and this we haven't really discussed, a form of deep suffering that is different from other forms of suffering because it's a pure suffering. And in fact, there is a joy that comes with that, the awareness of that true suffering. Um, And that reminds me, of course, of Jung and all the great teachings, really the law of sacrifice and all the the traditions, that consciousness really only emerges at the the, expense of suffering. So there's that sense in which that remorse of conscience opens us to right suffering, which brings a joy, which then engages us in the work in which attention and self-remembrance play such a central role. So I think I might stop there and just ask you whether 
What, how would you expand on that particular modest narrative of the Gurdjieff work? Where would you either correct it or take it from there? Say what he said, the word America. Did you? I didn't say the word. Oh, word. Yeah. But I'm saying it now. I say, no, yeah. no. No, I, I did reference the fact that right now in the United States, yeah, yes, yes. we are experiencing, at least some of us, because it's very important to recognize that other people are filled with joy and that there are all possible perspectives are legitimate. But in the community where we find ourselves, for the most part, there's a great deal of suffering going on right now. And we're very aware of that at Commonweal, and we've been creating spaces uh, where people can explore that suffering. And it seems to me that one of the things that happens a lot is that um, our sort of suffering in the face of uh, national and international events um, may not be as self-aware a form of suffering as we are capable of in the Gurdjieff sense. And that if we really want our suffering to be of service, it helps to recognize that in almost all the great teachings, suffering rightly understood leads to a growth of consciousness, which in my interpretation um, has a lot to do with the remorse of conscience and the form of right suffering that Gurdjieff was talking about. I'm not saying that we can just sort of automatically shift from our everyday suffering that we're experiencing now into remorse of conscience and right suffering in Gurdjieff's sense, but rather that Let's see if I can say this, that Gurdjieff's journey with his followers through war-torn Central Europe after 1912 um, shows us how he was able, under much more extreme circumstances, to stay with his teaching, that he was not pulled away by events from his teaching, and that our suffering today might remind us that there is a way, not just in Gurdjieff, but in the Buddhist tradition and Christian tradition and many others, both to recognize how dire the outer world can be, but also to recognize that in that inner common peace that you spoke of with respect to self-remembrance, that there is a place from which we can be more skillful in relationship to the external world, but also that we can be called to remembrance of what the true human task might be. Good, good. <laughs> good question. Um, there's a key to the Gurdjieff idea of suffering. It's a key to it, a key idea. 
really begins to practice it or understand it makes all the difference in the world between conscious suffering and the kind of suffering that is tearing us apart sometimes. Don't you speak of subjective suffering, I think, and objective you call suffering? It, you could call it subjective and objective. Yes, right. But there's a key idea, a key fact of human nature, the key idea of Gurdjieff, which he calls identification. And that means when, I, when a person identifies with something, some situation, something, some object, some person, some, some aspect of life, some habit, some, some achievement, some insult, insult, some whatever, it means you take your identity to be that. If I, uh, someone uh, says something unpleasant to me, suddenly I have hurt. I am offended. I am injured. Or someone says nice things to me, flatters my, tells me I have beautiful eyes or something of that kind of thing, like you have beautiful eyes. And then one feels, oh, I, I'm happy. I'm good. I'm beautiful. I'm pretty. I'm handsome, whatever. Someone takes something from me, I get angry. I am angry. It feels like I. Who, what is this I that keeps appearing and having all these reactions? <coughs> when this I is, when I'm a, maybe a very important person and someone says something bad to me, I, I am angry. I write a tweet. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner. And we are constantly identified as Gurdjieff. And that elements that, I, that with which I am identified, which I feel like this is me, I've been hurt, I've been praised, I, 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 that becomes like I have all these eyes constantly coming and going and coming and going. Hundreds of every day, hundred different eyes appear one after the other. At this moment, he would probably say, "All of us here are identified with something. We haven't that. We haven't. We don't know it. Maybe, but all a person has to do is to rustle, do something unpleasant to me, or even pleasant, and I, another eye appears. And he began to see that if you really can develop this quality of self-observation." This impartial, calm, non-reactive attention to every to these eyes. You see, there this 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 thing called identification is everywhere, and that means that what that means is, and this is a little complex, but I the uh, the uh, free attention in the human psyche keeps getting swallowed by reactions and associations in the body or the mind or the the like, dislike, whatever it is, pleasant, painful, upset, whatever, worried, depressed. This 
these reactions that are in the psyche, the broadly speaking psyche of the human being, which is really three parts, which we talk about later. But the attention is swallowed and another eye appears because it has grabbed all the free attention that I have at that moment and feels like I. But if I can see that, that means I'm losing the most precious energy I have at that moment is in my, my free attention. What little I have of a free attention is taken by, I, I spill the glass, I get embarrassed. I'm, I am embarrassed. When, the, when a, an object like that, a reaction like that, swallows all the, the attention I have, then I can make war, I can kill. I can get so identified with something that I kill you for it. I beat you, I hurt you, I get revenge from you. All that comes from identification. So how to thread one's way through all our suffering to see where I am identified. Because if I actually can see it, I can be free of it. If only for a moment. But if I actually see myself getting identified, seeing the attention swallowed by my reactions, all these impulses that are lodged in my neurons and nerves, if I can see that attention, it's possible to see it actually happen. It's not easy. It's difficult. You need help of other people to share it. If I can actually see myself losing my attention in my, in my reactions, the attention comes back like a sheep, lost sheep coming back to the shepherd. The attention comes back, the energy comes back, and I'm free for that moment. But it depends on the ability to, to bear to see the suffering, conscious suffering, to see that I've been identified. But sometimes I have this insight. I like being identified. Don't take my suffering away from me. Who would I be if I weren't suffering all the time? So this is where the real work can be followed. In a group who are interested in the same thing and have the help of someone who has been through it enough to know how to sort of help orient the work. One of the principal teachings of the work is that no one can do this alone. One needs help of others. And most basically help from other, some others who have been through for a long time, enough to be able to, if you do it all by yourself, it's almost inevitable. You, you, you go, it will follow what he calls the law of the octave, which maybe would be a distraction at the moment. But you see, that's why I say what you described so beautifully, that's where the idea of identification comes in. And it's very interesting and very difficult to, because we are, we feel identified, that means we feel this I. I remember my first, one of my most vivid, vivid experiences of identification and what it means. As I said, I just moved to, I mean, this is, I'm gonna indulge telling it's little autobiographical story. I had moved to San Francisco in 19, oh, it was ancient, ancient times, 1962 or something. And I was living on Russian Hill 
and on a big steep hill. And it was rainy or wet, and I had a car. It was an old, beat-up, broken-down Buick, which I bought from a man named Max. I should have known better. (laughs) (laughs) And anyhow, I was driving this old, beat-up Buick through a a street corner, through a crossing, and there was a man crossing in front of the Buick. And I was from, I happened to be from New York at that time, from the East Coast, where pedestrians are considered weak and and cars are much stronger. So I drifted past this man who was crossing, whereas in San Francisco, you're supposed to stop for a pedestrian. Well, I didn't know that, or even I knew it, I didn't care. And as I was, as I was passing him by, I was the car, and he was passing this man by instead of stopping. As I went by him, I, he punched my car. He, pushed, he punched it. I felt offended. <laughs> Why? Why? He, he, he couldn't have done any damage to the car, only to his fist. And yet I was offended. And had he, I would have gotten out as had he not been much bigger than I am. <laughs> but I, this thing is that I felt, and I said to myself, I'm identified with my car. And it didn't damage the car. You could never have damaged it more than it was. But <laughs> and I was so shocked to see that my, my sense of identity had gone into the car. That that kind of thing is a very important moment in the work when you actually verify an idea by seeing it with all of yourself. You can say, I saw that, I saw this, I saw myself get angry, I saw... But usually that seeing doesn't go down into your being and make it live, come alive as, as, as what he calls food. It's a kind of food that comes from experiences and impressions that feeds this other life inside. But that was a shock. And that, Gurdjieff uses the word shock as a, a meaning, a kind of experience like that that has the capacity to change, to change you even for a moment anyway, and which mankind needs these shocks of impressions fully received in order to grow. So when you see this kind of suffering, when you see this kind of identification, or when you see anything about yourself at, when it acts as a shock, and that doesn't mean unpleasant all the time, it just means that it just stops you, uh, then, I, then you have begin to have, you have enough of those kinds of experiences, and the whole question of suffering becomes deepened and in more, more nuanced, more interesting. There are certain kinds of suffering which are all identification. And there are other kinds of suffering which are the suffering that comes when you realize how far you are from what you're meant to be. And not just with your mind, but with your heart and your body. You, and that becomes where we come to the point where we were about remorse. So this is how. Now, there are certain kinds of cosmic suffering 
called elections. That was a joke. <laughs> I'll stop while I'm ahead. Again, there's so many places we could take this. One you just mentioned, um, and the enormous, I mean, you, you reference many of Gurdjieff's works and the works about him, but you mentioned as central to your experience and understanding Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous, where we find a great exposition of the law of, uh, the law of three and the law of uh, seven. Uh, of seven. And, uh, but let's just start with the law of three for a moment, uh, the, the positive charge, the negative charge, and the neutralizing charge and how most of the world sees things dyadically in terms of the positive and negative, but that the neutralizing uh, third law, according to Gurdjieff, can't be understood in the, in, in the realm of ordinary understanding. So could you uh, help us a little with what Gurdjieff meant by the law of three? Well, there was a, a, a play uh, produced by Peter Brook uh, called Tierno Bocar, and it was about, uh, anyhow, it was about political suffering, people in Africa and about this wise man and other people. And there was a dispute, a political, social dispute. And each person had their own view. And this man, who the wise person, kept saying, there's your truth, and there's my truth, and there's the truth. And that expresses very well the law of three. Or to make it um, more different coloration, there's a story by about this famous, this well-known uh, wise man figure which Gurdjieff makes use of, a man whose name is Mullah Nasser Adin, a Middle Eastern wise man or wise fool, but basically wise. And he's a judge. And some person comes and says his neighbor, his neighbor has stolen my chickens. And uh, the, the other guy, the neighbor, says, I didn't steal them at all. They came over their own free will. <laughs> and in any case, the judge, it's a difficult decision to make, so the judge rules the first man, you're right. And the second man says, but look, I have, uh, the evidence I have, et cetera, so here we are. You're right. And so this person, friend of Mullah Nasruddin, who goes around with him, says, Mullah, 
How can they both be right? He says one thing. The opposite man says just the opposite. They can't both be right. And, of course, what Mullah says, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a law, though, of, of, of cosmic law. It's nothing less than a fundamental cosmic law of three forces. The Holy Trinity is just one of the main historical exemplifiers of that thing. Nothing can appear unless there are positive, negative, or affirming, denying, reconciling. And you see two, you see wonderful illustrations of some Christian art where you have two, two people, maybe they're monks or something, and they're, they're not fighting or arguing, but a, a, a vigorous discussion, a conversation going on. At some, these two people facing one another like we are. And above is coming the Holy Spirit. The the white dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit is descending on them. So when there is quarrels or discussions or differences or oppositions and that's where it's possible if the Christian, in this case, has developed a certain attitude toward it and the other person also, then something can come down that could never have come down just all by itself without this kind of opposition and yet this will to listen to the other or to... So there, the Holy Spirit, in that sense, you can understand how that's something that doesn't happen automatically. But it happens throughout the world sometimes. Only the third force is something external. And it it reconciles things for a while. But then the old thing keeps coming back in one way or the other. And so if you know how to look at political events or social events or any kind of act or sporting events or any kind of newspaper events, you'll see the law of three is, is, is just maybe happening, but it's going outward. It's settling something outwardly. But the point of the law of three work is it inwardly it needs to take place with, but so it's just to, to make really see that it's not something that is easy to see because we're always seeing things in, as you said, dyadically. But if you just quiet sometimes and you just let the, uh, let yourself perceive without anxiety about anything, what's happening, you may see the third force appear. I remember once, politically speaking, there was a time when there was this impeachment proceeding that was about to happen to Bill Clinton. You all probably remember that. And it was getting very, very ugly and very dangerous politically to the whole country. Many of us thought. But finally, there was a... Congress was called together, as it was designed to be called together by the Constitution, by the founders of the country who were a bit familiar with this law. This law is there in the Constitution in many places that three forces are needed, three executive, legislative, president, all these... Three forces are up there. And uh, 
there was such a dispute between the Republicans and the Democrats about whether to impeach President Clinton. And they called them, according to the Constitution, the way it was meant to bury, this was the way to get, you get the two forces together and you would have a reconciling force appear. This one, one of the congressmen, I've forgotten now which one he was, gave a beautiful talk. Now is the time, more or less, he didn't use these words exactly, now is the time to come to some third principle where we can all live with it and learn from it more. And I was sort of watching that, thinking what the beauty of the Constitution was that it made this possible, which doesn't happen in every country, that kind of thing. But no, it didn't happen. It was the last, this was the last hope of the whole thing, and part, the partisanship won. There was no third principle that came in exactly. And it was a little Kosikov hopes for America, which has these kinds of principles that really seem rooted in some cosmic laws that the founders may have had a little glimpse of. It was a, it really was a very sad moment, and it, we just went into the whole thing and it was the same old story. And so that's what I'm saying. You can see it sometimes in actual events. Maybe we don't know what to call it, but it... Uh, it does take, when things actually do happen and things are discovered and things are good, you, you, if you sometimes look carefully, you'll see the third force. In nations, it's very, it's very common. When the United States became the major superpower in the world after the Second World War, uh, suddenly a second force appeared, Russia. And now you had two forces. When you see that there's no third force, then you begin to worry. Anyhow, it's 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 that, but it's in the inner world where it's when you wish to see, when you wish to work, when you wish to be in touch with truth in yourself, resistance appears. There's a part of our nature which always will resist. And it's a holy thing, it's a sacred thing for Gurdjieff, and it is for the great traditions. He has holy affirming as one of his prayers and one of the one of the locutions in what he's called what are called the movement exercises. Holy affirming, holy denying, holy reconciling is a is a prayer. And he also saw them as male and female and throughout. And if we were talking philosophy, we could talk about Hegel, Hegel. Marx and who by the way thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Who by the way, yeah. for your information, is yeah. interesting. Hegel was I just learned that Hegel had made a very great study of the Hermetic tradition. Uh-huh. And all, so much of his thing reflects that. I didn't know that. No, I yeah. just discovered that. Yeah. So say a little bit about the, the octave, the law of seven, because as I understand the triadic law of three were sort of eternal laws, and the law of seven was the law of becoming. Is that essentially yeah, yeah, correct? Yeah, development of a process. The development of a process. And a process goes according to seven steps and two intervals between me and fa. So 
this is the, the octave in music also. Yeah, the octave in music. The music is one, the scale is one expression of the law of the octave. And if it isn't corrected, it comes back around to that, itself. That is but, one thing that can happen. It's very, but if you have certain shocks, food for the system at certain points, you Yes, if you try any exercise, if you try any development, any undertaking, any process, you start with a lot of energy, a lot of interest, and there inevitably will come a point, and it's probably, it could be that moment between the, me and Fa, say, where there's needed another shock, another note, another energy needs to enter at that point. And if you don't know it, how to do that, you don't, you're not aware of it, you just can deflect. The, uh, the movement of the octave can deflect and go in a completely different direction. And it can do it again and again until it, sometimes that was illustrating. But what is the, the work, the, what, is, what is needed at this interval is a special, a special shock, a special energy. <clears throat> and this is putting off much too simplified, but the, what Gurdjieff work calls the interval can be crossed with a, an entirely new impulse of honesty, of sensitivity toward yourself. It's nothing to do, it's something to see, but to be, it's a difficult thing to stay in front of what appears at the interval. But if you can have that honesty, that inner quiet, it, the, the interval can be filled by another life, another energy. But it's a very good, interesting law, and you can read about these laws in In Search of the Miraculous by Uspensky, or most completely in Gurdjieff's great book called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Which is almost impossible to read. <laughs> almost is a big word. <laughs> but it's really hard. It's a most unlike any other book you'll ever read. And he's trying to put truth which he seems to have a good handle on, into two places at once, into here and into here. And hoping that down here something will dance with each other or work with each other and come back up and fill this ordinary knowledge with extraordinary truth. And I certainly recommend trying it Beelzebub's tales, knowing that you may wind up on the same page, loving it and cursing it. But it's a great, great book. So it'll be recognized as one of the great books of our time. But it's not, as you say, it can be impossible, but you're not supposed to figure it out. Just, just read it, let it go down. There's a passage in, I think, What is God, uh, yeah, where you talk about a moment in New York City where you had met Madame de Salzman, Gurdjieff's successor in his teaching. And um, you, through Lord Pentland, who was 
as you said, a, a second father to you. Um, you had, um, I'm not sure I have the chronology right, but in any case, I don't know, was your meeting with your study with Gene de Salzman, was that before you came back with Lord Pentland in San Francisco? No, it was after. After, okay, then I have the chronology right. So Lord Pentland had for you communicated to you that quality of being that leads to understanding as opposed to simply knowledge, that you had felt a movement in yourself. Um, and so you were sitting with Madame de Salzman in New York and trying to experience uh, self-observation, uh, finding that free attention that wasn't taken up with the ego and so on and so forth. And you finally had this moment where you experienced it and she was sitting with the whole group of you and she looked over at you and said, that was a good moment. Yeah. She did. Yeah. So my question to you is this, that and your experience with Lord Salzman was the beginning of this or not the beginning, but it was the experiential opening of this self-remembrance. So at a practical level, what has been the trajectory of your self-remembrance in your own life? To what degree do you find at this point in your life that those moments are more common or indeed that it has become a more sustained form of self-remembrance? You see, <clears throat> that question is there. And when I hear that question coming from a good friend under demanding conditions of a certain kind, it, it, uh, I can't just... chatter about it. I can't just tell you stories of my life. Or I could, but I would have to be remembering myself. It's when something touches something that is considered, I think rightly, sacred, it stops me. And <laughs> And then I'm very glad it stops me because I have, you know, have a habit to talk and lecture and all that kind of thing, which fills a, a gap, an interval, but which doesn't transform anything. And in order to speak to a serious question, very metaphysically personal question. Uh, I have not the right to just associate freely because I've been stopped. And I have to, something has developed and develops in us a kind of a good habit that when you're stopped, you realize you haven't been remembering yourself. 
And when you see that you haven't been remembering yourself, it's a little bit of remorse that comes. And that opens the heart, it opens someone. So, that habit can be developed over the years. That life stops you in, in a way that helps you to see for that moment that you weren't there. And when you, when you see, really see you're not there, you become there. And I would say that habit has developed over the years. You're listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner. So during our conversations, and I love this about you, when I ask you a question, you most frequently pause, sometimes for quite a while. I want to ask, is that an effort to sit with self-remembrance before you respond to the question? Yes. Thank you. I want to invite a a friend and beloved colleague in the audience, John Goldthorpe, who is here with us, who has been a student of uh, Jerry's. It's uh, gone two ways. Yeah, for a long time. Uh, John, you've been listening. We've done a number of New School conversations together. You've... um, tried to instruct me uh, about better ways of looking at the world, and I've been a poor student, I'm afraid. But um, as you listen uh, to Jerry in this conversation, I just welcome any thoughts or reflections you have. So uh, John Goldthorpe said that what struck him was uh, your capacity to both be heavy and light at the same time, and that capacity to move in both directions lifts you up, if I heard it correctly. I I just want to say John is really an extraordinary friend and resource for deep philosophical conversation about archetypal psychology and other matters in West Moran. And I'm, I'm just very grateful for the conversations we've had through the new school with you, um, which connects so deeply with the conversation with Jerry. I'm so aware in this conversation that we're simply scratching the very edge of the surface of this enormous boulder of the Gurdjieff work and your deep engagement with it. And every question leads to at least 20 other possible questions, and I've had to select one from each of the 20 as we go. Of course. But I think what I'd like to ask you as a final question is, um, you've been in the Gurdjieff work, living in the Gurdjieff work for all these years. um, And I appreciate and I'm grateful for your response to my question about self-remembrance, that you you say that there's a reticence, there's a stopping of yourself in speaking about that, which feels wholly appropriate to me. But what are you allowed to say to us of your personal experience of the Gurdjieff work over these years? What what are you not 
prevented uh, from saying about what impact living in the work has had on you. Well, oh, ever since when I first became sort of woke, woke, woke up to this whole question of in philosophy, uh, science, but my interest in philosophy, it had to do with a question that everybody has experienced in their life. Um, and um, it's a question that sometimes not not in a place like this but in many places it inspires a kind of mockery a kind of yeah, yeah, yeah but it is a great important question was what what's the meaning of my life everybody more or less, whether they admit it or not, sometimes has that question. What's the meaning of life and what's my life? What's the meaning of my life? And um, I studied philosophy partly in hopes of coming up with some approach to that question. And there are many thinkers, many places where it has helped. But it's only in the Gurdjieff work that I can say I really began to see what the meaning of my life is or could be. And that comes from the glimpses I've had, no more than glimpses, of another state of being in which as many of us who practice spiritual disciplines like meditation and so forth, can understand that when we're sitting in quiet conditions of meditation, whether it's you know, Buddhist or Hindu or Christian, Gurdjieff, um, I become the person closer to being the person I would wish to be. Or when I have very powerful, tragic emotions about life, uh, sometimes I become a different, a better person. I become fully present. We all know that. And in those moments, I'm capable of love. Um, nothing can disturb me because I give and I don't mind anything. So these moments of coming in touch with closer to what you would wish to be, in, particularly in sitting in meditation or other kinds of things like that, we will observe, I think, that the moment we get up, we lose it. Now, you may not agree with that. It may not be that way for you. I would be very uh, appreciative of that. But for almost all of us, 
quiet, special conditions of sitting, work, meditation, enhance my being. But the moment I move, and therefore life can become a place where you're searching for that meaning, or you forget all about it, and your life goes with what it has to be done and do practical matters and good and bad. And, and then I sit the next morning or whatever, and I come back maybe to closer to that. But the moment, maybe even the moment I move my arm, I see I almost always lose that state. So the question that becomes how to live more in touch with that person who appears sometimes under very quiet conditions, under supportive conditions. Must, are we condemned forever to be evolved? Not evolved, but relatively real human beings only once in the morning every now and then? Mm-hmm. Or can we live according to that in some way? Can we live that? That was, that the work has transformed my wish for the, what the meaning of life is to that fact, that experience. And when that is touched, I, that level, just a little bit, like you were talking about with Madame de Salzman, I see what that energy that can calm down into our life, into our being. Doesn't have a meaning. It is meaning. It doesn't doesn't serve so much anything. It is meaning. And the result of that experience of meaning, not the meaning of this or the meaning of this or the meaning for that or meaning to the... That energy, when that touches us, particularly if it goes goes down into us, makes me capable of serving, serving, loving, caring, and put into my work as a writer, as a teacher, my life with other people, a capacity that, without being, exalting myself in any way, but it's that energy that is moving my life and and I could say that's the meaning the meaning of my life is in that force that energy which I touch very very rarely and very briefly but knowing that that's there and that leads to another question and when you find this kind of deep question that you're moving the question was There are moments, these moments that we all experience sometimes and that are cultivated by spiritual practice of a certain kind. Cultivated, not just waiting for the accident, but raising the sail so that the wind can blow. You know, the grace comes. The effort of raising the sail makes the grace possible. Uh,
in those moments, it's possible sometime, and I'm sure most of you have touched this, to experience what you might call freedom from time. Time no longer exists. It's not an illusion, because time itself is some kind of illusion sometimes, but it's not. It's freedom from time. Timelessness doesn't say it. It's too ordinary a word, but it's a freedom from time. And that gives me a glimpse experientially that something may be growing in us when we work on ourselves that is free of time as a living thing in us, like a life within life that even has the possibility of enduring when the body disappears. And that brings a whole other dimension to this question of when Gurdjieff speaks of the growth of another life within us. So it brought me those two kinds of hope, hope of living more in relationship to that energy and the hope of any kind of survival that where life can go on. So I think I can stop there. Before I thank you, which I will do, I'd like to ask Gail Needleman to play another piece of the Gurdjieff music for us.
I'm moved by Gail's playing of the Gurdjieff music to, to say a few things to those who are with us before I thank you both. Um, and that is um, that what we're talking about, while it's rooted in your experience, both of your experience of living together in the Gurdjieff work for so long, and uh, your writing and teaching Jerry and Gail's exquisite mastery of the Gurdjieff music, which brings us Gurdjieff in such a living way. But it goes, as you said, beyond Gurdjieff and into the great traditions. And those traditions all teach this, um, this form of self-remembrance and the freeing of attention uh, for our true uh, selves. Um, and um, that beautiful phrase, the, the remorse of conscience that gives us a glimpse again and again of what we could be and how far each of us is from that. Um, and it just always seems to me that if we leave here less with a sense of your extraordinary um, teachings of this, which are so helpful to us, and more with the living questions ourselves of um, how this works in our own lives, um, that that's the real gift of your teaching, is um, that it awakens in us the questions that you've wrestled with yourself for such a long time. So um, anything you'd like to add to that? Just a joy to be here with you and all of you. Thank so you. for Jerry Needleman, uh, writer, philosopher, teacher, and friend, and for Gail Needleman, masterful interpreter of, of the Gurdjieff music, uh, thank you both for being with us at the New School. And thank you all for coming. Yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and host Michael Lerner, with Gail Needleman performing the music of Gurdjieff. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.